All right. Hey, pull up a seat. Pull up a seat. Take your Bibles. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, open to uh, open to Matthew chapter six today. We're unpacking the Sermon on the Mount this summer in depth. And if you have, uh, if you're new to Seacoast, I'd love to meet you in the plaza afterwards. My name is Pastor Dale, and Pastor Ryan and I are going to be continuing to unpack this uh, great message by Jesus. We're calling it Inside Out because it's issues of the heart that we're unveiling. Because what Jesus is teaching is that life, when it's lived the way God designed it to be lived, is lived from the inside out. It's not about trying to change our externals and just act like God wants us to act. It's about allowing God to invade our lives and make a change on the inside and then living life out of the heart. That's why I call this summer Issues of Conditioning for a Healthy Heart. Last week, we started into the section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus unpacks the Lord's Prayer, where he's teaching us how not just to pray, but to engage with a heavenly Father you cannot see. How do you engage? How do you really get in sync and engage with a God who is your heavenly Father that you cannot see? Pray with me. Father God, thank you. Thanks for the chance to uh, continue to uh, explore the wisdom of Jesus. Thank you for the richness of it. I pray that as we look today at the next section, this next statement in the Lord's Prayer, I pray we would learn not just how to say it, but how to believe it and live it. And I pray you would do that in my life. And I pray that would spill over into the lives of some others by your, your goodness and your grace. So we ask you to teach us. Would you pray that under your breath? Say, Lord Jesus, teach me. Don't teach the person next to me. Teach me. And teach them too. In Jesus' name, amen. If you know this, say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. See, we memorized this prayer called the Lord's Prayer. Last week we unpacked those two simple statements. That it begins with acknowledging and remembering who it is you're talking to. Acknowledging that their Heavenly Father is both one of supreme um, awesomeness, that we have an awesome respect for the bigness of God, but we also have an incredible engagement with the intimacy of a God who says, "You you can call me Dad. You can call me dad and approach me like a child does a loving father. We talked last week about how when you understand that about God, the natural response is, okay, God, guess what? I don't want my thing. I don't want my will. I want thy will to be done, not my will to be done. Because you are such a loving father, I trust you. Today, we're going to move into the section where Jesus is going to now begin to unpack what most of us start with in our prayer life, which is our stuff, our needs, our list, right? Because most of us, the way we begin our prayers is kind of like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be my list. And here we go, you know. And we begin to unpack the list with God. And the list is things like, you know, it begins, Jesus says that that's okay to do that. In fact, the very next line is, say it with me, Give us this day our daily bread. And that's all we're going to study today. Give us this day our daily bread. It's the only part of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus is modeling for us how to ask God for things, how to bring our needs to God and bring them to Him in the right way. Give us this day our daily bread. 
or it includes other forms of needs. Lord, fix this, please. Lord, provide this, please. Lord, heal this, please. Lord, fix her (laughs) or him or those kids or my parents or my boss or my life. Okay, so we're bringing God our needs and that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to look at what do we learn from this simple model? Because, again, Jesus said about the Lord's Prayer, he didn't he never said pray this prayer. He said pray like this. So what we're studying is not a prayer to be memorized and just recited by rote. It's a prayer that should be a guide whose principles teach us how to engage God in prayer, not just say a prayer, okay? Because God's not into that, okay? So here we go. What do you learn about bringing your stuff to God whenever we often feel, or can I just say I often feel like God's not listening? Because a lot of times I pray and I say, okay, God, here's my list. Boom, 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 boom. I'll give you just my top four today. Get the others tomorrow. Boom, 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 boom. And I give God my list and nothing happens. And then I begin to think, you know, is God really listening? I mean, after all, there are billions of people in the world. Most of them are talking to God in one way or another. They have, a lot of them have needs bigger than mine. So why would I think God is listening? And what if I think God's listening, but to be honest, I don't really see where he's responding. And, and he very seldom is doing what I'm asking him to do. Then, then why am I wasting my time doing this? Now, if you've thought any of those thoughts, then we're going to try to unpack the lessons of, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. What do we learn about bringing our needs to God? Well, here's what we learn. Let's go. We're going to learn first, what's he mean when he say, give us this day? Give me this day. Let's just stop right there. I think there's at least three key lessons I want to draw out, and then I'll give you a fourth one that's at the heart of the sermon. Number one, the number one is God knows you have needs and he invites you to ask. I love the fact that the father is saying, I want you to bring your needs to me. Don't be afraid to ask. Okay, don't ever hesitate to share your needs with God and to ask. The people in Jesus' day understood this. And in fact, the very fact that he would say, give us this day our daily bread, really connected with their lives because most of them were actually people that lived from day to day hoping they'd have something for tomorrow. The culture in which Jesus was delivering his message in the Sermon on the Mount is described by a scholar named Greg Bloomberg Craig Craig says this about the New Testament world at the time of Jesus. He points out in his article this. Let me give you some facts. Half the wealth of the world was controlled and owned by 1% to 2% of the population. So you talk about a disparity of uh, income distribution. It was at its worst. Half of the wealth of the world controlled by 1% to 2%. About another 5 to 7% of people at the time of Jesus were what we would call well-off. They weren't filthy rich, but they were pretty well-off, mainly because they provided services to the 1% to 2%. They were connected with them in some way. And they, and they were what we would call well-off. The next 15% is what we would call the New Testament middle class. The New Testament middle class would be defined by uh, Bloomberg as, um, as they had enough to basically live on and uh, maybe they could tuck a little bit away. Uh, so they would con- be considered kind of a, a middle class, 
pretty tight, had to watch their money, but maybe they had a little bit extra at the end of the day. That was about another 15%. The bottom line is this. Somewhere between 70 to 80% were described this way. Let me read you a quote. It said up to 70% of the population that Jesus spoke to were struggling farmers and fishermen or subsistence laborers working for others in the fields or factories, quote. A denarius, which was a day's standard wage for them, enabled a a laborer to buy food for himself and his family for one day. That was about what it would do, with maybe a little bit left over. Hired hands resembled modern migrant workers. Picture that. Their employment was seasonal. Therefore, any surplus that they received had to be carefully saved. By any modern standards, these 70 to 80% lived in poverty. And the bottom 10%, and sometimes even more, made up a class of outcasts and expendables. They were often below even a subsistence level with starvation as their very real threat. This was the life that Jesus knew that most of the people listening to him were experiencing. So when Jesus comes to them and he says, you know, God wants you to come to him and just simply say, Father, um, give us this day our daily bread. He's inviting them to trust God to meet their basic needs. And the reality was for most of them, that was daily bread because they didn't have that necessarily. So they were asking God to show up and meet their needs. So this prayer is not just for the wealthy, the well-off, the middle class. This is for everyone from the wealthy to the people living in poverty. This is the approach Jesus is encouraging. Second great truth, and that is your father doesn't just invite you to ask. He loves to give good gifts. It's, It's in the nature of God, and Jesus teaches that in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's the deal. He doesn't teach it in this location. So I want you to flip your Bibles one page, okay? Get with me. Flip your Bibles one page to Matthew chapter 7, and I want to kind of teach you an overview of Matthew 7, 7 through 11, because in that passage, Jesus goes into more depth on this, how do you ask God for things, okay? So he's unpacking this, how do you ask God for things with a little more depth. It's in the same sermon. So that's why I want to bring it in. Chapter 7, listen to verse 7. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, he, uh, everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks it will be opened. For what man is there among you? Now listen to this. This is talking about the character of God. For what man is there among you, that is as normal people, who when his son or daughter, the idea, asks for a loaf of bread, he'll give him a stone? Anybody going to do that? Implication? Of course not. Well, what man among you, if his son or daughter asks for a fish, he's not going to give him a snake, will he? Of course not. Okay, if you then, being evil, in other words, if you then, being sinful of heart, if you then, knowing that you're a sinner like everybody else, if you as earthly moms and dads, that's the idea, who are at the core evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, who is holy and perfect, give what is good to those who ask? So what he's going to is he's he's saying that as we ask God for things, Understand that the heart of God is the heart of a perfect, loving Father who loves to give good gifts. 
That's the heart of God. God is not a stingy God. He wants to give good gifts to you. And he says, the reason I know that is God is perfect. You're not. And you know that even you want to give good gifts to your kids. Every parent knows what I'm talking about right now. Now, the kids are wondering. I don't think that's my parents, okay? But trust me, most parents, even in their bad days, want to give good gifts to their kids if they could. More than once, Becky and I did this. And see if you can identify with this. Have you ever had Christmas approach and you're buying up Christmas presents? Boom, 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 boom. The kids have their wish list. You're working your way down it. And you, and you get there and, uh, and suddenly you realize, you know something? We've exhausted our Christmas budget already. And boy, we really wish we could buy this more thing, you know, one more thing for the kids. And we look at each other, you know, and I, and I say to Becky, I say, okay, have you already bought for me? Okay. And tell me the truth. I always have to add that. And, and, and she says, well, not yet. Okay. And she knows I haven't already bought for her because I shop between December 23rd and December 25th. Um, she shops in September, October, you know. So, so, you know, the reality is we say, okay, no, okay, we haven't bought for me. I say, well, let's do this. What if we promise, let's just not buy anything for each other so that we can take that money and buy something else for our kids. Now, have you ever done that? Maybe not. You should have. Becky and I did that on several occasions, okay? And usually at the last minute, I'd go out and buy something for her anyway. <laughs> She'd get kind of ticked, but then she always forgave me. But anyway, so anyway, guys, that's a good trick. But the reality is this. The reality is this. We did it because we love to bless our kids. And he says, it's the nature of God to want to give you good gifts. So when you're praying for God, to God and you're wondering, God, are you even listening to me? You need to understand, your Father invites you to ask. Secondly, your Father loves to give good gifts. That's His nature. Thirdly, and your Father already knows your needs before you even ask. Where do I get that? Well, again, it's the introduction to the Lord's Prayer. Go back now to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 7. And when you're praying, don't use a lot of long, meaningless repetition like the Gentiles. They think God will hear them because they talk so long. But, verse 8. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Period. So what are we learning about God? He says, ask me. Know that I love to give good gifts. And thirdly, know that, actually, I already know what you need. I already know that. So you may be thinking now, so why do I even ask? If God knows what I need and he loves to give good gifts, then why am I wasting my time with my list? What is God up to? Why even ask? And I think it's because of the next point I want you to get. And that is when you study God and the topic of prayer, here is what I took a lot of years to learn. And that is as the Father responds, he always has a bigger agenda and a clearer vision than I do. Always. He has a bigger agenda and a clearer vision. And this, once I began to unpack this and understand this, it helped me understand why God often doesn't answer my prayers like I thought he would. In fact, I grew up being taught this little formula about prayer. See if you've heard it. God always answers your prayers, but he answers them either yes or no or Wait, or wait. That's what I've heard. Okay, some, some of you had a third answer, but hold on to that, okay? Yes, no, or wait. I grew up being taught that. I've even taught that myself. I don't believe that anymore. 
And you're wondering, why did we hire this guy? Okay. Before you fire me, okay, here's the deal. I think there's a fourth thing. Yes, God sometimes says yes, sometimes says no, sometimes says wait. I think the most common thing that God says is okay, but I have a better idea. Okay, but I have a better idea. And here's why I think that's the most common response from God. It's because he has a bigger agenda and clearer vision than I do. Let me prove it to you. What is your agenda when you ask God for things? Um, I'm going to guess that your agenda is like mine. It's like this. I have a need or a problem. I know of a solution. And I want God to do it. And my end result is less pain, more gain in life. If I can minimize the pain, increase the gains in life, then me and God are got a team thing going. Okay? Is that is it your agenda? Okay. Now, I confess, that's my agenda. That's it. That's what I want. Now, what is God's agenda? Let me show it to you. Here's God's agenda. It's a little bigger. Here's what I mean by bigger agenda. Number one, God knows my real needs as his child. Now, that's, let's stop right there. God knows my real needs as his child. It's like when my kids come to me and they say, Dad, my kids would say this, can I have Oreos for dinner? Now, I like Oreos, okay? Double stuffed, even better. But can I have chocolate-covered double stuffed, even better? Okay, but can we get there? Uh, the reality is, I like Oreos. When my kids say, can I have them for dinner? I say, no. Why? Answer? Because I know that they need some other nutritional stuff first. And so I, I know their real needs, not just their wants, but their real needs. God understands that about everything in my life. He understands the, what the real essence of my needs are. And I often are clueless to what the real need is in my life. But God does. Secondly, God knows what my good is. And he knows what will grow me. God is concerned about not just my good, but my growth. In fact, um, even one of the songs we sang a little bit ago, there's a line in that song I would probably rewrite if I were the author of the song, uh, but I didn't put it in my notes. But it it talked about uh, my goodness, and God wants my goodness. And that's true, but you understand that what God wants even more than just my goodness is God defines my goodness as what also grows me. And that's why, for example, when my kids would come to me and they would say, Hey, Dad, can I have Oreos for dinner? I'd say, No, because I care about your growth. I want you healthy, not just with your belly full. So therefore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you veggies when you're asking for Oreos. You know, and, and it's because God cares about my growth, not just my pleasure and my comfort. So God has a bigger perspective. He has a bigger agenda. Next, God has a sovereign plan for me. God even has a plan he wants to work out in my life, and he understands that. And I don't understand that, but he sees that, and I don't see that. Because I have my limited agenda, God has the big agenda. And finally, God has his kingdom's good growth and glory as his highest agenda. And and by the way, my greatest good is what is good for his kingdom. And we forget that when we say, God, give me what I need. Give me, you know, bless me. God, provide for my good, okay? When it says... Um, all things work together for good for those who love God and are caught according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Understand that when it says all things work together for your good, that does not mean all things work together for your peace, comfort, and pleasure. It means all things work together for your true good, which is God's kingdom and God's glory, which is bigger than you. 
And once you understand that, you say, God, I want your kingdom. That's why he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, before you say, now let's talk about my needs. See, you're submitting to that fact that God's greatest agenda is his agenda that's bigger than just what my needs are. Secondly, he has clearer vision. Now, what is my vision? Let's talk about my vision. Here's what I see. I see a problem. I see a need, I think. And I see a solution. And I pray for the solution. Now, that's my prayer life. That's my vision. Because I'm not God. I'm not eternal. I can't see the future. But I can see what's right in front of me. And I can see a problem. And I imagine a solution. And I ask for that. What does God see? Here it is. God sees and knows me and my problem thoroughly. God sees and knows all the possible solutions, which there are many. God sees and knows all the ripple effects around the world globally of how he answers my situation, however he solves it. Because God can see the ripple effects that will flow out of how he chooses to respond to my seeing my problem, seeing my need. So God sees that. And God sees the ripple effects through eternity. So God can see the effect of how he handles a situation in my life and how it will affect other people around the world and not just them but generations to follow them for all time. Now, you see why I say God's vision is better? So God has better vision and he has a better plan. And finally, God sees what's best for me or us and his kingdom for all of eternity. Now, in light of that, Here's the question. Do you really want God to do what you ask him to do? And my conclusion is I seldom want God to do what I ask him to do. Because that would be bad for me and for God. That doesn't mean I shouldn't ask God to do what I want him to do. Because God understands my vision's narrow. So the best I can do is say, okay, God, here's what I need. Uh, here's what I would suggest, God, but I want to be very careful because I've learned it's better to pray, God, here's my suggestion, but thy kingdom come, thy will be done because you probably have a better plan. And I'm okay with that because you see more clearly and you have a bigger agenda. And so, God, please don't mess my life up by doing what I'm asking you to do. That should be the spirit in our prayer life. But he wants us to ask. Now, why does he want us to ask then? Because it's a relationship. See, I want my kids to ask for Oreos. Because I just want them to know that it's okay to ask for Oreos. It's okay to come to dad and ask for something that they, in their spirit, want. And then it's okay and even better if they've learned to trust my answer. That my answer will be out of a better vision and a bigger agenda. See, that's the relationship that we have going with God when we learn to ask him for things. Now, last week I taught you that God wants us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I submit to your will. Sometimes God gives me sermon illustrations that I don't look for. Um, Here's my past week. Uh, Sunday afternoon, we take off to have dinner with some family up in Orange County. We're driving across Pendleton. We come to where the uh, checkpoint, you know, the immigration checkpoint is. Uh, you know what happens there? Traffic's backed up, right? 
Traffic's backed up. We're just setting in traffic. We're just creeping along, creeping along. Okay, it's not my will, but it's thy will be done. You know, and I'm creeping along. And, and we're creeping along. And in fact, in the back seat, I'm talking, Becky's sitting beside me. In the back seat, I have one of my daughters, my son-in-law, and a six-month grandchild named Josiah. And we're having a great time. And then with absolutely no warning, um, somebody plows into the back of our car and totals our car and uh, shakes us up big time. And how that happens when you're sitting in stop-and-go traffic, I'm thinking, what in the world happens? We get out of the car, young man, probably in his mid-20s, gets out of the car, he's distraught, he, he's feeling terrible, he's not sure what happened. The police show up, um, the car is not drivable, it's, uh, in fact, it's totaled. Um, now, I, I don't know why that happens, except people do dumb things. You say, well, could God have stopped that? The answer is yes. God is sovereign. He has a sovereign plan. He could have easily stopped that guy. But when the police came and they asked this young man, what, how fast were you going and, and what happened? I mean, why did you do this? The young man simply said, you know, officer, I don't even know because I don't remember anything until I hit the back of his car. I think I fell asleep. And I think he's probably right because he never put the brakes on. We heard no squeal of the tires. None of that. It's just like, bam, and we were hit with no warning. You know, now here's the deal. If I believe God sees more clearly, has a bigger agenda, then my first reaction was I was ticked off. Um, I was angry. This guy just wrecked my car, my 1999 low-mileage car that I was hoping to drive for a bunch of years and no payments and blah, blah, blah. God's just wrecked my car. You know, God didn't do it. But this guy just wrecked my car and, uh, and, and could have killed himself or my family. After doing a quick check, it looks like everybody was okay. That was my first concern. So it looked like everybody's okay. He gets out of his car. I get out of my car. I check on my family. My family, by God's grace, is okay. I thank God for that. And then I go to talk to this young man, and I'm tempted to just chew him out. And then I remembered that when I do dumb stuff, God is kind with me, gracious with me, forgives me. And in fact, even more specifically, I remember that when I was a little younger than he was, I rear-ended somebody. And he was distraught. He, was, he couldn't believe what he had done. And, and God just said, tell him that it's okay. So I had a chance. I didn't give the guy the long sermon, okay? I, I didn't do that. He didn't kneel and accept Jesus in front of me or anything like that. Okay, I'm not going to embellish it. But here's what I had a chance to do. I had a chance to slip, slip away to the side once this young man... We had a chance to, a little private conversation. I just had a chance to see. He kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, don't. I said, you know something? You need to understand. I forgive you. And the reason I forgive you, I'm, now I'm ticked that you did it, you know, but I forgive you because I do dumb stuff and Jesus Christ forgives me. And so how dare I not forgive you? I said, so you need to stop beating yourself up. But you know, the other thing I'd say is you need to learn from this. You could have killed yourself. You could have killed my family. And for some reason, neither happened, and that's a good thing. So you need to thank God for that. And, and I don't know about your relationship with God, but for me, Jesus Christ has been the thing that's changed my life, and that's why I'm not hitting you in the mouth right now. 
you know, that's why I, I, I care about you. And uh, I would encourage you to use this as a chance to perhaps investigate your relationship with God and see if he can't help you deal with the guilt that you're feeling right now. Um, and, uh, but I forgive you. A few minutes later, I look over and I see my daughter standing by the car talking to this guy uh, with the baby and being kind to him. I don't know what she said. But I, I remember looking at that and I thought, whoa, this guy's kind of, he must wonder what kind of weird family we are. <laughs> but here's the deal. Here's the deal. When was the last time somebody thought you were weird because of your forgiving, gracious spirit? It ought to be happening in our lives all the time. When other people are going to be angry, other people are going to let them have it, we ought to be different. And it ties back into this because I believe that as I pray to God and as I live life with God, engaged with Him, He has a more clear vision of what He wants to accomplish and He has a bigger agenda than I have. So therefore, I want to be looking for ways in which I can engage with God in His agenda. And who knows what might happen in the life of this one young man. Maybe this changes the course of his life. Maybe he, in reality, was drunk from being out the previous night and staying up all night. Maybe, I don't know what he was doing. But something, maybe, maybe God will use this to change his life, change the life of his children, change the life of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. See, God sees how this could ripple down. And I don't know what God will do. Maybe God does nothing with it. I don't know. But just knowing that I have a God who is engaged with me and he's engaged in life, then it causes me, as I pray about my needs, give me this day my daily bread. Basically, it's, okay, God, you take care of me one day at a time, and I'll trust you for the future. And, God, how can you use this unexpected answer to my prayer? Normally, when I take off to drive just about anywhere, Becky and I will say a short, hey, Lord, give us some safety while we drive. On this day, um, I didn't pray that. Maybe I should have. Um, but even if I'd prayed it, God might have said, you know, Dale, safety is not what you need today. You need, to, you need a conversation with this guy. So I'm going to put him to sleep while he slams you in the back. I don't know. See, the thing is, it's okay for me not knowing what God's up to. But it's not okay for me to think God's not up to something. Because God is always up to something in your life. And he sees all these things. He sees you, your problem, your needs, the possible solutions, the ripple effects. And he knows what's best for his kingdom. And he, then he answers your prayer. That's why I believe God's answer is seldom yes, seldom no, seldom wait. It's usually, okay, but i got a better idea. And I want God's better ideas in my life. That's what I mean by submitting your requests but doing it with the awareness that even as you ask, God probably has a better idea. Now, as you ask, what do we pray for? Let me shift to that, okay? So we ask with this spirit of knowing that God wants to give good gifts, He wants us to ask, all this stuff, and He has a bigger agenda, better idea. Now, as I ask, so what should I pray for? And that's the second half of this prayer. Give me, God, give me this day. I want it. Give me this day my daily bread. When you hear that phrase, what comes to mind? I think for the average 
For the average uh, Jew listening to Jesus, which was his audience, their mind would go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So turn there with me in your Bibles. Got to go to the Old Testament, hang a left, go pretty deep. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I don't have time to unpack Deuteronomy 8 in detail. But I want to just give you the essence of it. And here's what the story is. Remember, this is the story about how God treated Israel when they had been brought out of Egypt. Remember, they were enslaved in Egypt. Remember that? Okay, remember the crossing of the Red Sea? Remember God opens the Red Sea? He rescues them. He frees them from slavery. And he says, I want to lead you to a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Man, the sweet days are ahead. Let the good times roll. I'm taking you to a promised land. And God is taking them to a promised land, but he's going to go through a wilderness before he gets there. They go into the wilderness, and they're not finding enough food. So they're getting hungry, and they're getting a little concerned. Where are we going to eat? How are we going to live here? And they start to grumble and complain against God. God, why don't you meet our needs? Why don't you answer our prayers? So it's a, t- it's a story about God not answering their prayers the way they wanted them answered. So they're getting upset. So God says, okay, look. If you, if, if you want to make sure you got your daily needs met and you're not willing to let me do it, just providing for you, here's the deal. Okay, I'm going to provide your daily bread. And he provided what was called manna from heaven. And every morning it would appear on the ground like the dew of the ground. And if you study scripture, it's basically kind of like cornflakes from heaven, okay? Not frosted flakes from corn heaven, okay? Cornflakes, okay? The, the unsweetened type. So picture that, okay? Now... Um, and they would gather it up and they would eat it and it provided their basic nutritional needs. And that's how God kept them alive for years and years in the wilderness. Now, here's the deal. They wanted frosted flakes. God gave them cornflakes. And he gave them to them day after day after day after day. But he met their needs. Their basic needs were met by this daily bread from heaven. And I really think that that story shapes the culture that these people had come out of. And I think basically what God is saying is this. Look, trust me. Every day and just trust me one day at a time to meet your needs. Now, why did God do that instead of like every day, you know, God would, um, you know, God would bring them uh, some cattle over the hill so they could have a steak barbecue uh, every day, uh, ribs from heaven, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, that's what I would have voted for. But God didn't do that. Why did he not do that? Because of several things. Here they are. Our loving father often will deny us now to bless us later. And that's what he was doing when he met their daily bread needs in the wilderness. He was denying what they wanted now in order to bless them and prepare them for a season of blessing later. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 and pick it up in verse 5 and follow with me. Here we go. It says, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, training you, Just as a man disciplines his son, therefore, referring to this incident, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. You shall walk in his ways and fear him for, and here it is, I'll give give this on the screen, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land where you will eat food without scarcity in which you will not lack anything. So that when you have eaten and are satisfied, this is in verse 9 and 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall then bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. In other words, God says, look, I want you to receive tremendous blessing in the future. But when, but, but when I give you that blessing, when I give you more than you need, you will mishandle it if you don't go through this learning period. 
you need to get your heart right before I bless you or else you will respond incorrectly to the blessing. You see, what God is saying is this. He uses our physical hungers by letting us go without something for a while. And it doesn't just need to be food. We may go with, and we have plenty of food. You may go without a relationship. You may go without a spouse. You may go without uh, a job. You may go without uh, a promotion. You may go without a friendship that you desire. Whatever those basic needs are, he'll let us hunger for a while in order to prepare us to handle the blessing when it comes. And that's exactly what he did in the wilderness. He says, I'm working on your heart. I'm working on your heart. And I think there are three heart issues mentioned in this very story. And we're going to conclude with those. Here they are. Number one, the father wants to keep us humble, not arrogant. Look at verse two in chapter eight. Here it is. He says, you shall, because of the way I'm going to feed you manna from heaven, you shall then remember all the way in which the Lord your God led you in the wilderness these 40 years so that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you and he let you be hungry and he fed you with manna, which you did not understand, nor did your father know, fathers understand that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, God says, I'm going to let you go physically hungry, and then I'll show up and feed you these cornflakes from heaven so that you learn to humble yourself, trust me, and you learn that man does not live by cornflakes or frosted flakes alone. He lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Understanding and following the wisdom of the mouth of God, the word of God, is more important than anything you have. And that's the lesson you need to learn so that when I bless you, you don't mishandle. See, God says, I'm going to deny you something that you need. I'm going to deny you for a season until I prepare your heart to be blessed later. Got it? Does that make sense? Number one is you need humility. Number two, you don't just need humility. He wants a reliant, not an independent heart. A reliant, not an independent heart. Look at verse, uh, uh, pick it up in verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. He said this, Beware that you do not forget that the Lord your God you not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and you're satisfied, your belly's full, when you have built good houses and lived in them for a while, when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold multiplies, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. See, if we don't get the heart right, then blessings wreck our lives. That's what it's saying. So God says, I'm going to let you go a little hungry for now until your heart gets right. Number one, with humility. Number two, it gets right with a spirit of of, um, reliance upon God. I love the way verse 17 and 18 end. Here they are. God says, Scripture says, God fed you manna, which your fathers didn't know, that he might humble you, 
that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you would say in your heart, my power and my strength of my hand made me this wealth. And God says, that's a big mistake. So, you know, it's, it's not that God doesn't want to do more than just meet your needs. I think God loves frosted flakes more than cornflakes for his children. But he also wants you to be able to handle the sweetness of his blessings. So humility, reliance upon God, and the third and final one is contentment with what we have. Those are the three heart issues that prepare us to be able to ask and receive blessing. Where do I get the third one? Well, it's right in the passage. But I love the statement in Philippians 4 the best. The Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians 4.11. He says, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance of life, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having an abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, isn't it interesting? Verse 13 says, say it with me, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You probably never realized that that statement is directly connected with being able to trust God when you are in scarcity. When you are praying, God, please meet this need, and it's not happening. When you don't have much, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or, Paul says, when I get an abundance and I have the best year of my life financially and all of a sudden I get the promotion, my company takes off, I get a better job, whatever it is, all of a sudden I'm being blessed with a friendship or relationship. I find the person of my dreams. Whatever the need is, when God meets the need, can you also stay humble and reliant upon God and content? Or when things are not happening, can you be humble, reliant upon God and content? Because here is the kicker. The wealthiest man on the planet or woman, you're never more wealthy than when you are humble, trusting God, and content with what you have. And you're never more impoverished than when you think, I won't be happy unless I have more. That's poverty of the soul. So as we learn to ask God for things, what have we learned? Give us this day a daily bread. Provide for my basic needs, Lord. I'm going to, I'm going to ask, but I'm going to be content with my daily bread. And I'll trust you for the day after tomorrow and the day after that. And when you can get at that place in your heart, and it's hard. Okay, it's not easy for me. You think I'm some super spiritual person that never thinks about retirement or the future or planning ahead or where I'm going to buy my next car? (laughs) Okay, yeah, I'm shopping. You know, the reality is God wants me to say, you know, Dale, did I provide a car for you yesterday? Well, yes, Lord. In fact, you provided an incredible deal for me yesterday. Well, then relax. Relax 
and uh, see what I do this time. Because I got a bigger agenda and I got clearer vision. So don't just see a problem, see a solution, and get bugged when I don't jump. Instead, bring your needs to God. Pray about everything. Ask Him for anything. Nothing wrong with that. But as you do, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Because God, I'm sure you have a better idea than I do. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the incredible wisdom of Jesus. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the lessons of the people of Israel in the wilderness. Thank you for the lesson of the day that you want us to have a contented, reliant spirit. And as we're content with what you give us, and as we're trusting and relying upon you, you invite us to ask. Thank you for being such a heavenly father that loves to give good gifts. You're not stingy. You love to bless your children. But you also want your children to always live to bless you. So, Father, may we live to bless you. May we live to glorify you. And then trust you every single day for our needs. Lord, um, even as we move into worship now with communion, I pray that you would use the time that we sit now and reflect on the cross. Reflect on what you did on the cross for our sins to give us life. Would you use this time to uh, connect to this sermon? Use this time to remind us why it is we can trust you. Because you are a heavenly father that gave the most incredible gift when you gave Jesus for us. So we worship now around the Lord's table. In Jesus' name.